CarMax is putting peace of mind back in car shopping by putting you in the driver's seat to find a ride that's right for you. Because at CarMax, we believe you shouldn't just settle for a car. You should love your car. That's why every car we sell is CarMax certified quality so you can be sure with upfront pricing that's the same for every customer. So don't settle. Find love at first drive and start shopping now at CarMax.com. CarMax, the way car buying should be. All right, you're listening to Ninth Floor Radio 96.9 FM. My name is George Shen. I'm going to be your host for the next hour for what I would say is kind of a best of the Zum podcast, uh, my podcast where I talk to artists, musicians, creative types. Zum started as a fanzine and record label website, and I just took the opportunity to try and focus on Bay Area artists, and now artists outside the Bay Area, but that's the anchoring point for the show. Just trying to pick the brains of creative people and I'm going to present you for the next hour is a couple of excerpts from longer interviews that are available online on the Zum podcast, which you can find at iTunes. The first person that I have on deck for the interviews, this is an interview from back in 2013. I had a couple of days hanging out with Calvin Johnson from Beat Happening, Dub Narcotic, Hive Dwellers, K Records, Indie Rock, Persona. And we had a moment uh, in my car where I was driving him across the bridge to another show. I'm in the car with Calvin Johnson. And I'm eating a pear. Calvin's eating a pear. Uh, this is like our third day of driving around in my car together. Mm. Is what I it's just like being on tour. It is kind of like you're on a, a Bay Area tour. So I, I just thought of something that someone told me one time, which is that actually this is how you should do an interview is not looking at each other okay. for radio like right. pretend you're in a car they're like pretend you're like sit side by side and pretend you're in a car and I'm going complete method all the way yeah. so method of I hear like you. actually just doing that I'm following your lead yeah you're afraid of flying or no, you're not, not afraid you don't you prefer not to I prefer not to have to take my shoes off unless I want to like on the train I can take my shoes off if I want to mm-hmm can't walk around without your shoes, but you can relax. It's very serene. Amtrak travel. Amtrak, yes. Mm-hmm. Don't I would I've always wanted to do that Pacific Starlight. Oh yeah, Pacific ride. Coast, Coast Starlight. Coast Starlight. That's the that's the uh, West Coast train that goes from Seattle down to Los Angeles. Yeah, uh, I like the <clears> idea <throat> of like being able to like nap and. and do it and it costs about as much as a flight it's probably like the same it's definitely cheaper than driving and do you drive I have uh, I don't uh, own any sort of automobile but but I do have a driver's license yeah you'll drive on tour Mm -hmm. yep Mm -hmm. a couple years ago didn't you on tour with Dub Narcotic in like a pretty rough van accident Uh, was it like a back ice situation that was exactly what's the date uh, today is October 5th. Okay, because it was October, it's like, uh, it's like October 13th or October 15th, 2003. Oh, wow. So that's almost 10, 10 years, years ago. Yeah, it's like 10 year anniversary. So, so it sounds like it was pretty traumatic. Yeah. I mean, it wasn't any fun. Uh, where were you when that happened? That was in east, far eastern Montana. Mm-hmm. Oh, wow. Close to the state line with North Dakota. Would you like hit a deer or something? Or? Well, I don't know. I was sleeping. Oh, you weren't th- you weren't awake when it happened. No, but uh, Chris Sutton was driving, and he 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 <clears throat> says there was some sort of animal that he swerved out of the way and uh, went off the road, and the van you know rolled over, and it just was it was not uh, yeah. things. The van was destroyed, and uh, wow. the people were. Did not, you you did not wake up? When it happened, uh, I I became conscious several days later. Oh my God! So you were you were I was like in a hospital of, for was, was it like a coma? Well, no, but I was just in the hospital for a week. But you're conscious. I think that I it. I may have come too, but I don't right. know. I was not really didn't check a calendar or anything. Yeah. I I think I was a bit delirious. I was a bit out of it, <clears throat> according to what I'm told. I I don't remember anything until about three three days later. Three days later. Wow. So you just 
that's kind of a lost, just a lost chunk of time in your brain. Mm, mm. And everyone else was in a similar condition. Well, I was the only one who up. I was only one that was in the hospital that long. Chris, he uh, he broke his knee, I think, and yeah, his jaw he still was has broken. Knee problems, right? I think. Yeah, I remember seeing him. His jaw was all wired shut for a while, and um, Heather was Heather was flown out was was thrown out of the car. Oh my god! She had out a window. Yeah. So she, she didn't have any like broken bones, but she had uh, some concussion? some back some back problems. Oh, I had I had a concussion. That was the one with a good time. So okay, so three days I, out and a concussion. Wow. Yeah, and a, some broken bone, broken ribs, and a bunch of other stuff. But uh, separated shoulders. And it was it was just yeah, it wasn't yeah. a lot of fun. You get physical therapy or anything? Yeah, I went to do physical therapy for a while. And uh, and all that, but yeah, I just remember hearing a little bit about that, and you were out of commission for a while after that. Right? Yeah, couldn't quite. I had a bad stutter for about a year after that. Oh, really? Yeah. Wow. And so it's clearly that's just a sort of something, some kind of head wound thing where you get a stutter. Yeah. Because of that, that's crazy. And eventually it went away, or you had to go to speech therapy, or something. Well, it or? just, it just, yeah, just. It went away, it comes back once in a while, but mostly it's gone. The thing that, that was, I started playing shows in February. The, right after, February after an October yeah. accident? Yeah, and it, that's because when, in like a month after the accident, some people in England were like, hey, we're doing this festival. Well, not festival, it was really like a arts. Uh-huh. It was at the, at the Museum of Modern Art at Oxford University. They were like, we're doing a creative thing and uh, we want to have you come and play and I figured oh by then I'll be fine right but uh, I didn't realize I, I wasn't going to be fine and you flew then. so I said I would do that and yeah. then so by when I got closer I realized I wasn't really ready to play shows but fortunately the shows were all in England so it didn't really matter <laughs> but what's interesting about it is that uh, your your brain is is a mystery and um the singing part comes from a different section of your brain from your talking. So even though I'm I'm having these these problems speaking, mm-hmm. I could sing fine. So I would sing just perfectly naturally. But uh, then when I would talk to the audience, it was I would the stutter would come back. But I also had to relearn my songs because I couldn't remember a lot of the, the words and stuff. So that was that was. But it, it, all, it all worked out. But it was actually now- I think it was a good thing that I. That I um, that I played those shows so soon because it really got me going. Mm-hmm. And imagine, like, yeah, like having to deal with the stutter that you never had before, and not be able to get your thoughts across as coherently yeah. as they are. And they're probably told everything's going according to normal in your head, right? Like, yeah, like oh, I know what I'm saying, and then you just there's a, a this doesn't gap. quite happen. Yeah, it's and then that's the same thing with I couldn't really walk for a while. I mean, I could walk, but it was very slow. But no broken, broken legs? Well, I had a broken ribs, but all the, all of my injuries with separated shoulder and the broken ribs and the concussion, there's no treatment for any of those injuries. Yeah, ribs. The only treatment is you wait for it to get better. Yeah, ribs. And so, with a concussion, it's just they just wait for you to get better. And so, it's just waiting around. Yeah, the, the ribs was pretty painful. I had, I had some call it abrasions and like I have some strange scars that were from that as well really like kind of like <clears throat> internal cracks just, well just like things? you know I, I just got cut from you know the, oh. I was, the car rolled over a couple times so oh, I don't know what happened and there's somewhere, gear and stuff too right there's stuff in there yeah the, the whole thing was <sighs> that's so crazy brutal but See, Heather and I were both sleeping on the bench seats in the back so we were both completely out of it when it happened all right, so that's a little dark, but everyone made it through. Chris Sutton, Heather Dunn from Dub Narcotic Sound System. They're all fine. I guess 12 years later. But now is another conversation from 2013 that I had with comedian Ron Lynch. You may know him by voice on shows like Bob's Burgers, Home Movies, Adventure Time. But he runs a great show in L.A. called Tomorrow. He's part of the Boston and San Francisco comedy scenes before he moved to L.A. And here's Ron. 
didn't listen to comedy albums that much. Yeah. You know, I you know I talked to friends, and they all have Cosby albums and you know a whole bunch of stuff. And um, I don't really think I ever had a comedy album until wow. college. Mm-hmm. Um, and that was a Monty Python album, which I thought was great writing. And then I found that all it was was the audio from their TV show. Oh, and it was still funny. Yeah, you know, it was still ridiculously funny. Um, the Python is maybe. Yeah, I don't know. I mean, I. This ties into something that's been happening to me lately, but I grew up watching a lot of kids shows in New York, you know, mm-hmm. and those guys hosting the shows so it was the local guys. had to do, yeah. yeah, had to do a live show every day, every day of the week. They had to come up with stuff yeah. and they didn't have writers. They didn't have a lot of writers. No. And one of those guys uh, was Chuck McCann, who uh, I'm now friends with, which is pretty surreal to me. I know he's, the name. Know. He's 78. Uh-huh. Um, his claim to fame, like he's been on the Tomorrow Show and he comes by and I'll, I'll introduce him. Nobody really reacts. And I said, Chuck, you've got to do a couple of the voices so people know who you are. But, um, this is even before you, but he used to be this guy for right guard. Um, this guy used to open up his medicine cabinet and then Chuck would open up the other side of the medicine cabinet. He lived on the other side (laughs) and he would go, Hey guy, how you doing? (laughs) And that those commercials were as popular as the progressive commercials are now. Right. You know? yeah, yeah. So he was an influence on me more than for comedy albums, I think. Mm-hmm. That kind of stuff. And comedy movies, you know, movies. Mm-hmm. Um, I loved movies as a kid. Um, and he, uh, he and I are actually doing sketches now, which is hilarious to me. And it's surreal. Because he had a lot of puppets on the show, too. Uh-huh. And I was at his house recently. And I went, where are you... You said you have all the puppets. Where do you keep them? And he went there right behind you. And they were like in this big black cabinet thing behind me. Um, and he said, you want to see some? And I went, of course I do. And he opens it up. He took one of the puppets out and did it right in front of my face. And it was spooky in a weird <laughs> way, you know. Yeah. Um, it's like Krusty the Clown type stuff. Yeah. Yeah, kind of. Yeah. And they were great puppets. It was, it was You would operate the mouth with your hand, but there'd be wires below the puppet that you operate with your other hand that would make the eyebrows go up and down or the eyes close and open. It was pretty crazy. They were were a combination of marionette and hand Mm -hmm. puppet. So he is a guy, did he just eventually just end up moving out to L.A. and trying to make it in L.A.? Or how did he end up? Yeah, he moved to L.A. to do uh, TV and stuff. Yeah, he's all over television in Mm the 70s. And okay. the early '80s, he was on, you know, Kojak and Rockford Files and all those shows. He was on almost every show. Right. If you look at his IMDb, it's insane. As like a character actor. And As stuff a character like actor, or like the the quirky comedy guy. And mm-hmm. um, on Rockford Files, you really don't know if he killed the guy or not. And he plays a comic who claims his material was stolen by a different guy. It's oh, pretty great. That's a good idea. And then recently, I said, "Yeah, the Rockford Files was great." And he goes, "You know what happened to me on that?" And I went, "What?" Uh, he said, uh, they called me the day before because Shaky Green was supposed to be the guy, uh-huh. which is, that name is always hilarious to me. Shaky and um, they called me up and I had to memorize all my lines like the night before. And he went in the next day and they said, do you have a nice suit? Because <laughs> I didn't even have a costume for him. <laughs> yeah, wardrobe, yeah. Yeah, so he went in the next day and shot the show. Yeah. And he's great on it. I saw, I saw it recently. And how did you end up befriending him in L.A.? Um... I saw him a couple of times at the front bar at the Improv, which is one reason I'm upset to getting rid of that. But um, And I said, hi, I grew up watching you. And he goes, you know, I do voices. And I thought, he was, <laughs> I thought he was like a mean guy. But now that I know him, he says things meanly, like they get a reaction out of you. Mm-hmm. Uh, and then he saw me do a character thing at the Improv one night. And he just called me over to his table and introduced me to his wife and uh, just started talking to him. And it was, I said, you know, I, I, I think you're great. He was super friendly. Um, and then I saw him one more time somewhere. And then one night we were doing the Tomorrow Show, which starts at midnight. Um, and the ventriloquist was on the show, who's from New York. Oh, she's going to hate me if I can't think of her name. Um, uh, anyway, she <laughs> said, you know, my friend Chuck McCann is coming. Uh, tonight, I wonder if you could hold the show for like 10 minutes. And I went, Chuck McCann from New York. She goes, yeah, yeah. And I went, really? And then he shows up and I went, Chuck, I never invited you because it was a midnight show. And he goes, Ron, I'm up till four. <laughs> That's awesome. <laughs> uh, you were in early Louis C.K. films, like uh, short films that 
he was making. Yeah, we made a few in yeah. New York for, um, well, they were made for Howie Mandel's HBO show, and then I was, um, like, produced writing a show called Shortcuts, where Louis was hosting a show with short films, and the last show we had, I think, seven extra minutes, so I went, let's make a movie for no budget and show people how to do it. We didn't make any money doing the show. He may have made a little. I think I made... Two hundred dollars uh, writing for eight shows or some ridiculous amount. Mm-hmm. Um, so we made a movie about a cowboy in a in the meat district of yeah. New York, which was pretty fun. Yeah, um, I recognize that in that neighborhood. Yeah, like the the meat patching district. Yeah, I was wearing a ridiculous cowboy outfit with a big hat and chaps and uh, big boots. Someone pointed out that there's a similar joke to that that gets reused in Pootie Tang. Yeah! Wow. I didn't. I don't remember it, but yeah. someone, when we showed that film when you were in at Las Vegas, I was like, "Oh, there's yeah." We a came up with a bit content. where we just keep stepping yeah, forward yeah. and forward until we're like face to face, and then you're passed through each other. Yeah, and it was Tommy Blanca, and we didn't know each other. I just saw him at a Conan party, and I went, "That's the guy that should play the villain." <laughs> and um, we needed to find a guy that night for the shoot the next day, <laughs> and he was writing for Conan, I think. Oh yeah, and Amy Poehler's in that too. Amy right? Poehler's yeah. in it. Yeah. Do you deliver it? Did you set out? I was on a couple of sitcoms. I did a couple of sitcoms. I did this one called, uh, this is another uh, career thing. It was, I was on Raising Dad with Bob Saget, which was another single dad thing with two kids and a grandfather. After Full House? Yeah, after Full House. After Full House, right. And Jonathan Katz wrote it. Jonathan Katz Katz came out with the product. So he brought me in to audition and they liked me and then... um, I forgot what it's called, but I was down. It was down to two people getting a major part on the show, uh-huh. and it was Andy Kindler and me, <laughs> the guy <laughs> I was at college with. So um, Kindler went into the room at Warner Brothers, I think, or somewhere like that. Um, there's like levels to the auditioning process. Oh yeah, yeah, yeah. When we got the, just the two of us, and there was a third person, I think, but we both knew that he wasn't gonna get it. I think he was like, I don't know, uh, whatever, a dark horse. Uh-huh. So. But Kindler walks into the room, and I hear people just go, yeah, Andy! And I went, oh, crap. <laughs> so in any case, he got the job as the math teacher on the show. Sackett's a teacher at the school. Okay, I kind of um, remember this now. And yeah. so they, I think they threw me a bone because they let me play the uh, auto shop teacher. Um, oh. And I was in one episode... Oh, I know why. Because, yeah, this was, you showed this in your reel. <laughs> yeah, it's in my reel. reel, yeah. That's right. That's why it's, uh, I'm like, what does Bob Saget I show my reel at your show? Yeah. Wow. <laughs> I had to fill time, I guess. Oh, there was that uh, other thing, which was you and Louie and another woman doing, like, a, a news show. Like, a current events yes. kind of. Yes. Wow. That was a show I really wish got picked up, because I was, like, the anchorman. And, um, yeah, you're, like, the main. And Louie was great on it, but yeah. he should have been, like, a commentary guy instead of sticking him at the desk, and I think he knew that, too. Mm-hmm. Um, and did you guys pitch that as together, or how did that come together? No, I actually, I, I went on trips with my girlfriend, and every time I would go on a trip, an opportunity happened for me in L.A., mm-hmm. So, which was a good thing and a bad thing. So we thought that was like part of the luck. Three times that happened. And one mm-hmm. time, we were in Italy, and uh, Dino Stamatopoulos, who was the head writer on the show, called me and said, you got to come in for this. And I went, I can't, I'm in Italy. I can't do it. I can't come in. He said, we're auditioning tomorrow. I went, well, I'm screwed because I'm not going to make it. We come back three days later and I'm in town and I get another phone call saying they weren't happy with the audition. So I'm allowed, I can come back in and do it. Mm -hmm. So I got pretty excited. Uh, And it was Courtney Cox and um, Dave Arquette was the, uh, the producers. Okay. And what's the name of that? It was called Midnightly News. Okay. And it was supposed to go on after Mad TV, I think. On Fox, yeah. On Fox, okay. yeah. yeah. Um, and it would have been good, but there were too many personality problems around the whole thing, you know, except for me. And uh, she's going to kill me, but the she married... Uh, oh, the other Kevin woman? Nealon, the woman. Yeah. Oh, okay. I can't think of her name. I can't. I, yeah, she I was great. Either, and... Um, but Dino was the head writer on that. Dino was the head writer. He was a Boston Dan Harmon was a writer Dan on Dan Harmon, okay. Um, and Dan Harmon used to like me because I used to sell his jokes that were really absurd but really funny. Mm-hmm. Um, but there were points where Courtney Cox was going, uh, we're all like going, it's, pretty, it's really funny. And she's in charge of everything. So she would just go, look, I know comedy. 
And, and the room would just go silent. The room would just go silent. You know, Dancing with Bruce Springsteen, uh, and this science, but yeah, yeah you read yeah. other people's words, yeah. Um, that is such a long story, though, that whole show thing, and yeah. it was such, uh, her and Dino didn't get along, and there was a point we were at her house, and Dino grabbed a thing, and she was... There were, there were writers' meetings where Courtney Cox was actually um, pumping her breasts in front oh, of us. Because for kid, yeah. yeah. Let me cover it up, but <laughs> yeah, for the kid. Um, just no, just like there was just no like other time to do it. You yeah. couldn't do it any other time. So busy. A bunch um, of male write, comedy writers. Right. And like, it's like a girl from TV is pumping her breasts. And Dina opened up her refrigerator all and said, um, Wow, is this your breast milk? And she said, Yes. And he went, Can I have some? And I think to get to him, she went, oh, yeah, sure. He took it out. <laughs> he took it out and drank <laughs> Courtney Cox's breast milk, yes. Wow. Uh, pretty crazy. Brave, man. Besides hanging out with Chuck McCann now, the, the other Hollywood story, and, and running into people, or like co-hosting my show with like Scott Tom, Thompson from uh, Kids in the Hall. Oh, he co-hosts co tomorrow. He co-hosts with show. me, you know, just, just having people co-host with me that, I always loved in comedy, but they would come, I would say, we can't talk about anything before you co-host with me or whatever, you know, I didn't want to have any, any preconception, and Scott Thompson really wants everything set, which was kind of interesting, but after the first time he went out, he goes, I got it, yeah. and it was pretty fun, but that was kind of surreal to me, because here I am performing with a guy that I, you know, kind of grew up watching, yeah. or loved, loved the comedy of, yeah. and uh, so... I had done the show. I had I went back on the Paramount lot to audition for uh, Andy Richter's show. Uh -huh. uh, Andy controls the universe. Yeah, Andy Richter controls the universe. Oh, yeah. um, and uh, that was the advertising company one, right? I think so. And yeah. I saw like the pilot. Are you? Yeah. On, you're you're on you're on. The I was one? on the show. Yeah. Okay. And so I auditioned for that, and um, which is another separate story. But I was on the lot, so uh, I knew they were taping a show. So I walked over. This one security was pretty high too. I didn't know if I should be doing this, but I walked over to the Raising Dad set, and um, I walked in the door, and Saget's joke with me was always, Hello, Ron! It was that I, I yelled everything, because mm -hmm. I would project my lines no matter how, you know, probably why I'm cut out of movies, because I'm too loud. No. Um, <laughs> hey, I just put it together. Um, so I walk over to the set, and Saget goes, I go, introduce him. He introduces me to a couple of people. I walk around. This guy, Will Schreiner who's an old-time comedy, he used to host yeah, a, a show, too, yeah. was directing the show, and I said, how's it going? And I'm always interested about learning about directing TV, which I think is what I really want to do, too. Mm -hmm. um, he goes, well, we're doing this scene, and then we have to, because of the child labor laws, we have to get this scene done, and then we're going to go down here to the bar. And he kind of freezes, and he goes, are you going to be around for a little while? And I went, yeah, sure. He goes, all right. And then he calls me over, and he goes, I think we're going to have you play the bartender. I went, oh, really? Okay. And he approaches the producers about it. And the showrunner was uh, Norman Steinberg, who wrote Blazing Saddles. Funniest guy ever. Really great guy. Um, so he comes over to him and he goes, I think we're going to have you in this scene. You want to do that? And I went, yes. And he goes, but we don't have any lines for you. You're going to have to probably ad-lib the scene with Saget. And I went, sure. <laughs> and so they're moving the cameras down to that scene. And the show, the AD, is that who will be running the thing? Mm -hmm. Who will be the timing? He said, uh, he's the NAN or what? And they, and they look at me and went, do you want to do it? I went, yeah. They grabbed me, throw a costume on me, throw me behind the bar, push the sad extra out from the bartender spot, and um, Sackett walks forward and just yells to everybody, by the way, everybody, Ron's in this scene because he just happened to be here. <laughs> and then walks back, and then he leaves over and he goes, he says, you know we're making this up. And I went, yeah. <laughs> Which is what happens. Saget goes to the bar and he goes, I'll take this. Uh, boy, you know, I'm, I'm on my first date tonight. But then I turn around and he goes, Mr. Lynch. <laughs> Which was another ironic thing. I never asked to have my name as characters, but... Uh -huh. I it did, like, four happens. things, which they used my name. <laughs> right, home movies, right, yeah. Yeah, I think writers just... Oh, it was Sarah Silverman, too, right? Yeah. On oh, Sarah Silverman, I was Sorry. Dr. Lynch. Yeah, Dr. Lynch. Yeah, I was Dr. Lynch. <laughs> That's um, just your deal, yeah. So wait, this is the Raising Dad show. This is you're not the the teacher. You're the bartender first. I got what happened on the teacher episode that oh. I played the auto shop teacher. Uh -huh. I got fired. 
because I was kind of, <laughs> oh, so you come back because I was okay. kind of nasty. So I kind of, I'm going to have a different job now. <laughs> oh. And what happened in that episode is his daughters thought he got fired, but it was oh, me. Yeah, it was, yeah. They somehow confused it. So then another episode, you're just happy to be on the set, right? And happened, then yeah. put you, so oh, I'm playing the bartender. Now. Keep the continuity going. <laughs> so <laughs> this is another story of my career. As I come off the, after the scene is over, and Norman Steinberg grabs me and he goes. I got a phenomenal idea. The next next season, you keep showing up. You're, you have jobs. like odd jobs. And yeah. I went, oh, well, that sounds great. If we get picked up. And you can guess what happened. No, <laughs> the show didn't get picked up. Briefly, I wanted to say the thing about you being on the Golden Globes with Louie. How did it? Because that, <laughs> that was like a, probably the most uh, screen time you've had. On the it was pretty great. Recently. It was pretty great. And um, my phone just went crazy text-wise, and especially relatives. And I just saw you on TV. Like what no are you one, doing there? No one knew. It was <laughs> pretty fun. It was really absurd. And, Louis, you know, it was just Louis State. He knew I had a tux. Yeah, he's just like, um, you want to go and sing with me? Yeah. yeah. That's cool. It was pretty great. We were late, too, because he didn't want to go down the carpet. But we still, <laughs> you could still go in the back room. But we were late. The show started at 5. We were at 5.02. Didn't get food. Oh, no food? Yeah, we just had oh. a thing of Godiva chocolates in front of us <laughs> and drinks yeah. and champagne. So that's all I had for, yeah. like, an hour and a half, two hours was champagne and chocolate. Um but it was pretty absurd. Anyway, the whole thing was great, you know. And you guys have sort of uh, maintained a pretty close relationship over the years. Yeah, I mean, yeah. you know, he's he's very busy now, and I don't really oh, talk yeah. to him that much anymore. But um, I always have a place to stay in New York, you know. Mm-hmm. He'll always put me up. Mm-hmm. He'll always answer those texts. Yeah, yeah. Um, uh, but and yeah, that's he's, going back to being from Boston and like knowing each other back then. And yeah, yeah, yeah. He did yeah. his first. He's shows paid me back yeah. in spades, though. You know, yeah, he's, yeah. He, I've I've worked the road with him, and yeah, no, he's a great guy. Yeah, he's doing so well right now too. Yeah, he's doing he's great. Blown up. Sort of a nice postscript to that interview in the 2014 Emmys. Louis C.K. credited Ron as the guy who gave him his first break in comedy. And so that's a nice little bit of validation. But yeah, definitely check out Ron Lynch when you get a chance. The next interview is with Allison Wolf, the singer of the original Rat Girl band Bratmobile. And she talks about going to the country of Georgia around the same time that Pussy Riot was arrested. So we learn about that country, their political situation, and sort of the international legacy of Riot Girl. Here's Allison. I have an ex-boyfriend from a long time ago, from the late 90s, who lived around the corner from me in D.C., and he's from Georgia, the country, mm-hmm. Georgia, and he was a lo- local neighborhood activist. Um, we, a lot of us were doing this um, D.C. neighborhood a- activism at the time, mm-hmm. and um, he was involved, and so I met him that way. We started going out. He's pretty funny, wacky dude. Um, And we just remained friends off and on over the years. And um, he recently got in touch with me um, with all the Pussy Riot stuff going on and said, hey, there's a lot of women in Georgia who are concerned about this. They want to try to have a festival or some kind of event. And um, could you come? And we want some Riot girls to come. They know that I know you and da-da-da-da-da. So he invited me and Toby Vale and um, also uh, Nadia Bice, who she's in a bunch of bands in Portland, like Ghost Mom and She Beast and the Caledonias and Fierce Perm. But anyways, and she's also um, a performance artist and stuff. She's great. So, um, and then we were trying to invite some other people too. Rachel Carnes was supposed to go, but half the funding got cut. So in the end it was, and Toby couldn't go. So in the end it was me, Nadia, and uh, this guy Bernardo Santorelli, Oh, from from Noisy Pig okay, yeah, and yeah, yeah. yeah and um, from um, Dada Swing and oh, stuff. Yeah. But yeah, Italian who lives in Berlin and puts on queer nights and stuff. Mm-hmm. So he, we, us three went, mm-hmm. and they both did their solo performances, and we made this kind of uh, cover band that we played also, where we did Bratmobile covers, oh, okay. and uh, we did covers of Nadia's band, uh, Ghost Mom. We did Cherry Bomb, whatever, you know. It was kind of funny, but it was mostly we were just going to have a presence. In the end, it was a little bit, the timing wasn't right, really, for Pussy Riot, because they were already in jail and all this stuff. So um, not that we, you know, aren't concerned with that, but it it ended up 
being more timed in conjunction with the um, upcoming elections in mm -hmm. Georgia. So we were there the week leading up to their elections, which were pretty massive. And they had this um, prime minister and president in place, Saakashvili, who is just horrible. And he's just really trying to westernize the country. He's trying to say, he's really racist. He said the N-word on national television before. He is trying to say, oh, we're Georgians, we're white. And, you know, he's trying to whitewash the country, basically, and westernize it. He's renaming towns in the countryside, like, after European towns. Like, he called some town Verona. And he just thinks this is somehow going to make progress in the country. Mm -hmm. And um, he's also just extremely nationalistic. I mean, it makes sense that Georgia would be somewhat nationalistic after breaking away from the Soviet Union. Mm -hmm. But he kind of went too far in the anti-Russia direction. Mm -hmm. So he's super anti-Russian. He's sort of, it's sort of like here, he's creating Russia as the enemy so that people yeah. don't notice what all the other that he's doing. Yeah. And he's um, stopped allowing Russian to be taught in the schools. Well, that's, and now they teach English in the schools. Okay, whatever. I mean, everyone speaks Georgian, first and foremost. But the second language used to be Russian, and now it's English. That's not the worst thing in the world, I guess. But at the same time, there's this huge divide between the generations. Mm -hmm. The older generations all speak Russian and Georgian, and the younger ones don't speak Russian and they speak English. And there's a it's kind of a weird disconnect. With the festival, what, were, they, were they trying to push a specific agenda, or is, was was it no. really anti this guy? It was anti Sakashvili uh -huh. for sure. So when did they get the funding from? <laughs> Well, actually, they went around to small businesses, oh. and they raised money from small businesses. It was very sweet and, like, really generous because, I mean, there's a high unemployment there. I was surprised. Um, were there bands that were also in the festival that were, were local? Yeah, we, so it, wasn't, it ended up not really being a festival, but it was just, like, a series of events and mm -hmm. activities. So we, we only played, actually, three times. Um, this guy, Arakli Kakabadze, he's the one who helped organize it and brought us over there. He's, he's, less, he's into music and arts, but he's more of kind of into like activism, activism and performance activism and stuff, but he's not so much a musician. So mm -hmm. the musician end of things kind of, I guess, suffered a little bit, whatever, because um, I wasn't even in a real band at the time. <laughs> I would like to go back with a real band, but we'll figure that out. Um, but he was great at organizing us speaking events. So we went and, and met with a lot of different groups, like the LGBTQ groups there, mm -hmm. um, feminist groups. And um, we went to a lot of protests and met with a lot of people. We were on Georgian national television. Really? And, yeah, we, it was crazy. We went and, on... And, and was it a thing where those people knew about Bramobile? Uh, some people did. The oh. feminists and queer... Yeah, like some of them did. Um... They knew about Riot Girl and stuff mm -hmm. like that, yeah. Um, but a lot of people didn't necessarily knew, know who we were, but they just knew that, hey, there's these Americans and an Italian, German, well, European here, and there's these Westerners here, basically, who, instead of hiding out in the hotels and who are just being official diplomats, doing nothing, they're trying to actually meet with people and talk to people and find out what's really going on. And that's what we were doing. We were networking. Yeah. We weren't there to tell anyone, hey, this is what you should do and this is how you do it and woo, woo, woo. But we were just really talking to people and trying to find out what was going on there yeah. and kind of bearing witness to it as well. And I think that was really important for people to have someone from outside the country bearing witness to what's going on because I even read it in the New York Times after the election. I mean... Luckily, Saakashvili admitted defeat. It was a landslide, believe me. But they just, oh, he graciously stepped down. It's like, are you kidding me? He was caught with state-sanctioned torture and rape in the prisons. This is what was going on there. And these people, I mean, his government was so stupid, they videotaped their crimes. That's how they got caught. They videotaped the rape and torture so that... I guess they thought it, they could use it for future humiliation, that these people would be so humiliated that they were raped that they would shut up. 
No. <laughs> so anyways, um, it was just unbelievable. And I can't believe the New York Times was like, oh, he so graciously stepped down. And this place is trying to be progressive. I mean, they have George Bush Street and they have Ronald Reagan statues. How you get progressive? In the I know. And I was like, uh, last time I checked, that was super right wing. But yeah. whatever. Yeah, like I'm like Abu Ghraib. <laughs> yeah. I mean, our friends there, like some of the organizers, they... Um, in the past, when that turned into George Bush Avenue or whatever, they uh, graffitied it. Yeah. And they were put in jail for that. I was going to say, like, are they, were they really worried for themselves in the same way that the Well, they didn't care, them? but they went to jail. Yeah. yeah, yeah. yeah. If these actions, when Georgians commit these political actions, they do go to jail. Mm -hmm. And it's like, it's it's real. It's, and I guess it's similar to what happens well, to the Occupy or something. Yeah. That was yeah. happening a lot. And, I mean, they just, I think they threw red paint bombs at it or something like that. <laughs> um, so, yeah, so that trip in Georgia was very productive. It was very interesting. And we met with people and saw a side that I think, I mean, it's a small country. And even if, I mean, first of all, the Western media doesn't even report. Yeah, I know nothing. Right, about they don't even really acknowledge their existence. Yeah. But if when they do, it's such a skewed view. I couldn't believe it. Um, and And they were saying, oh, there are tons of, election of international observers there and they were everywhere on the streets and I was like bullshit they were in the Marriott lobby the whole time and I know because every time we were downtown we went into the we went to piss in the Marriott lobby we went to the bathrooms in there they were always hanging out in the lobby these people didn't go out in the streets they didn't meet people they didn't meet with people they didn't ask the real people what was happening what was going they had on handlers yeah. how they felt yeah. And it's just total BS. And, I mean, we met with people. Like, there was people of all ages crying about how f they longed for the... I mean, things were so bad that people were longing for the days of the Soviet Union. They were nostalgic for Soviet stuff because it had become so nationalistic in the other direction. Mm -hmm. And people were saying, at least under Soviet control, we had um, social programs. Mm -hmm. There was a safety net of some sort. Um, now we have nothing. Unemployment's like 50% or whatever, you know. It's just, it was intense, very intense. That was Allison Wolf talking about her trip to Georgia in 2013. Next up in the interviews, Oakland musician Mark Jurgis uh, helped run the Sublime Frequencies label. It's a musician in his own right. Also, uh, started his own label, Sham Palace, to reissue music from the Middle East and Southeast Asia. Here he is talking to me in 2012. Right now, you seem like you've got a ton of things on your plate that involve a lot of traveling, and like you're running this other label. And I know you've been involved with Sublime Frequencies for a long time too. So it's like, uh, is it hard to kind of prioritize like making your own work when you're kind of like in this role where you're enabling a lot of things yeah it can get hard because and it's the one thing i miss the most is really just doing my own stuff so it, it's been on the back burner for way too long and that's why it's taken six years to do a follow-up to tourists really but now i'm really kind of trying to prioritize it and say okay july is going to be poorest month and yeah, it's been really hard to do because of uh, there's been just been so much going on. I mean, yeah. and, and there's been a lot of travel. Yeah, maybe we should break down like what tours. yeah what your what your multiple roles are because we've got like okay, so we've kind of covered some of the solo music. Then, uh, like, I don't remember the first thing I saw, but like, when did Sublime Frequencies kind of start up? Like two thousand three. Three. So you were very much involved in like the first couple things, right? Alan and Hisham and Rick Bishop started. Uh, Sublime Frequencies in 2003, and we were all hanging out at that time and, you know, sharing ideas and just kind of thought like, wow, well, we all do a lot of traveling and obviously we all collect a lot of music and we hear so much great stuff out there, but it's completely unrepresented here. You know, it's mm -hmm. not uh, a lot of the stuff that we were hearing, like we have a um, focus on, you know, 60s, 70s, and sometimes even more contemporary stuff mm -hmm. that's like hybrid, traditional pop you know, uh, electrified and the kind of music that you, that the people listen to out there. So, right. yeah. 
Um, the stuff you'll hear at, at you know bus stops or restaurants in taxis and that kind of thing. And, and that kind of came out of just you guys are all pretty seasoned travelers. Mm-hmm, yeah, and... we were all traveling quite a bit. Yeah. And, and uh, Alan's older, so he'd been traveling since the early 80s and collecting this stuff. And, mm-hmm. you know, I started traveling in the, in the late 90s to the Middle East and uh, then to Southeast Asia and just doing repeat trips and really just getting into it. Yeah. And all the music we were hearing was, you know, and all the stuff we were taping off the radio, because that's mm-hmm. something we all do, too. We kind of came together on that and thought, you know, we all have something to offer here, you know, yeah. as far as, like, you know, completely underrepresented music that, that isn't, for some reason, isn't really being exported. And um, when, when you guys, when, well, with you specifically, when you went out to go traveling, did you know that part of it was you are going to do field recordings? Did you kind of plan that out, or yeah, just because you're a music person, like mm-hmm. I just got to find whatever music is going on in these towns, or was it more like I just got to see the world, or you know, like mm-hmm. it was both. Yeah, both I really things, wanted yeah. to see the world. I really wanted to get out of here. It took me like five years to you know finally get it's it together. Saving money to go across the world it used to be. I mean, it's still hard, but like I think more people just do it now. And I just remember in the '90s being like, oh, I can't imagine going anywhere on a vacation. I just couldn't imagine putting the, the money together. Yeah, and the world was a lot bigger then too, pre-internet, uh, right. or you know, new internet was you know. Yeah, well, pre-internet, I would say, yeah, still, because like, I don't know how how wired up people are in some of these places. Mm. Yeah, I mean, at that time, not not too many, and, uh, and and you know, there were still people here that didn't have email addresses at, mm-hmm. when I first left. But the the where did was the first place you went on that trip? Then? Syria. Okay. Yeah, I just went right into it. And uh, yeah, I, I took a cassette field recorder. It was 1997. Mm-hmm. Seeking out music that you know I knew must exist, like Debka music uh, and uh, other folk music that I knew had to be different than, than what I'd heard by... Whatever know, got filtered a little bit through. Yeah, like big filtration system. Yeah. yeah, so you know, just kind of going and checking it out and, and getting out of this country. Uh, and, you know, I mean, travel isn't that encouraged in this country still. I mean, like you're saying, people do it, but um, maybe even less so back then. Uh, yeah, I talked to someone who like, it should be mandatory if you're an American citizen to go travel. Absolutely. Yeah, yeah it, will, like, it will change your life if you let it. I mean, if you don't go with any humility, a lot of people come back and say, like, well, doesn't it make you appreciate where you live a lot more? And it's like, no, not at all. <laughs> yeah, not at all. Uh, it's, well, it doesn't, yeah. it, I never came back thinking, thank God I live here, you know. Or also, when I went to China last, I was like, hey, did people have records? Did everyone make records? And they thought I wanted to go to a new CD store yeah, and buy new CDs. Yeah. If you go and you go into one of those places, they think like, oh, you're from America. You want to see where we have our best CDs on offer here. I'm like, no, I want to find like cassettes or like grimy old things. And I was kind of thinking about what you guys were doing. And I was like, I was in China last summer. And I'm like, I started asking people, I'm like, hey, do your parents have records or yeah. anything? Like, maybe they probably got rid of it all. Yeah. There was this mental... And, and also, like, I think the government controlled so much in China. Mm-hmm. That like, like, who could afford to put out records? Mm-hmm. You know, only, like, the government could afford to put out records. And it would just be propaganda records or, like, something that represented, you know, the Republic or something. So, sure, sure. and, and uh, yeah, and there's just a whole push towards new technology. I feel like, like, I don't know if you've encountered that when you go somewhere <laughs> and then everyone's just, like... Yeah, it's like my grandma might have some of those things, but we just, hey, do you have an iPod? It's, yeah, this is really bringing up quite a bit because uh, a lot, I mean, and especially, well, I would say everywhere, the Middle East and Southeast Asia, both, um, a lot of priority is put on the new. Yeah, and so much. the old is it is meaningless. And I, you can't blame them because like they didn't get that stuff that we've had for a while. At least in China, particularly, I'm like they just want to do America better than America did. Is that right? Yeah, but like yeah, when you go to Southeast Asia, or Southeast Asia, or when I try to do research for stuff here, like when I talk to the Cambodian community about about trying to find uh, material or or the Vietnamese community, mm-hmm. um, I mean literally people have thrown away master tapes. They've thrown <sighs> so away crazy, and it's not it's not interesting to them anymore right it's ephemeral period yeah. and that's you know yeah you, like you said you can't fault anyone for that that's just a different way of looking at it we have a really we have a you really it. strong way of fetishizing and, and nostalgia and really deeply getting into stuff like mm-hmm. on on a like the, the sort of collectors here like collector's disease you know and <laughs> the you, you and you and alan and rick yeah and, and yeah. some people are sicker than we are you know i'm yeah. like well i mean you get into like toys and comics and you know <laughs> deep you know really deep yeah. do you find that elsewhere especially in a place like japan which has a similar mm-hmm. kind of mo they they have it in japan and you can find it elsewhere you know here and there you'll, you'll find collectors in india that really get into the old 78s and, mm-hmm. and and that kind of thing but less so and 
in a country that's had a lot of wholesale destruction or, or trauma, like mm-hmm. Cambodia or Vietnam, right. I find that they, it's, it, oh. they will honor certain classic traditions, and they lost so much of their own traditions. Right. But yeah. like they had these great, you know, great uh, singers who are, who are uh, revered that, and famous. That, that film that you guys showed, actually at that show we were talking about earlier, that was so like heartbreaking that uh, it was based on an actual woman who was... Uh, you know what I'm talking about. Rose Sarai Satia. Yeah, the okay, Cambodian yeah, yeah. singer. Uh, and it was like a sort of a dramatized version of that story. Like they tried to force her to sing. And the, yeah, the that was a film by Greg, Greg Cahill um, mm-hmm. that uh, he's also trying to get funding for to do uh, a bigger production oh. of. It's the story of Rose Sarai Satia. Mm-hmm. And uh, she and Sin Sisamuth, among many other uh, singers, were kind of at the peak of Cambodian culture, which included cinema and, and, and uh, mm-hmm. a lot of output on in music and yeah. radio. And that was a period that lasted about 10 years, 65 to 75, or a bit mm-hmm. earlier than that. Mm-hmm. And it was shut down by the Khmer Rouge. And after that, it was just a wholesale loss of culture. Yeah. Um, in the 80s, uh, when they started regrouping and, and the refugees, the survivors had you know started popping up in, in the States. Mm-hmm. And France and elsewhere, they 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 started recording in in new studios and trying to resuscitate and make you know uh, relevant contemporary music again. Right. Uh, a lot of it was imitation of the of these great singers who were murdered at the hands of Khmer Rouge. So they really idolized that and looked to that. Mm-hmm. They did some great stuff in the eighties. Uh, it's really like the forgotten decade for for Cambodia. The eighties and early nineties. Cambodian Americans. Cambodian like, Americans and Cambodian yeah. re- refugees. Um, a lot of that stuff I started finding at the library here in Oakland uh, in the mm-hmm. in the 90s. material uh, in particular you know that became uh, the focus of the Cambodian cassette archives release Mm -hmm. and I still collect that stuff and I'm working on a second volume Um, but in doing that and trying to get research uh, done and trying to find other recordings from the 80s you know I've had conversations with people who've thrown away entire collections of the 80s stuff because it's irrelevant the the 80s didn't you know it's not it's all about now and the new house material like remixed versions of this and that and same with Vietnamese music when I was trying to do this Vietnamese comp. It's interesting to note at the end of that interview that Mark and his wife now live in Hanoi, Vietnam. So he's still running Sham Palace. He issued a great compilation of Dabka music. And there's a lot more stuff about his bands, Porist, Monopause, Nung Pak, in the interview that I posted. So definitely go check out my interview with Mark and now is the last chunk of the show this is a talk I did very recently with Jamie Stewart from Shoo Shoo we were in a band together called Some New Rabbit Cycle we've been on tour together and just hadn't seen each other in a while thought we'd catch up and here's a funny story that he tells near the end of our conversation do the the Twin Peaks thing and you're going to do some touring with it and do like this festival stuff yeah some festival stuff in Europe and hopefully we're trying to get a show together in LA at this big church here and then uh, yeah and then I think later this year I think just doing some regular one regular Shushu show in Europe at the Venice Biennial and then maybe some shows in the Middle East and then just working on a new Shushu record and then we'll do normal touring for that next year normal touring you know, how normal all your tours are all normal. now they're really boring i don't now know. they're boring well i don't drink on tour anymore uh-huh. so uh so you uh, you just don't drink on tour or you don't drink i drink at home yeah, but yeah. i just on tour i don't um just to kind of keep my voice and my fading constitution together 
Yeah. Um, so now touring is incredibly, incredibly dull. I just sleep <laughs> as much as possible so it goes by quicker. Yeah. And then, uh, I mean, playing is great still. Yeah. But just the, you know, running around part is incredibly tedious. I mean, that's good that you still enjoy the act itself. Oh, yeah, yeah, yeah. I think there could be a tendency, I would feel, if I was doing it as much, you do it like half the year, right? Pretty much. About, usually about five or six months a year. I mean, on a year when we have a record out. On a year with a record. So, like, it's like you are living out of a suitcase the whole time, and it's kind of... But, I mean, luckily, the person I tour with now, I really, 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 really like a lot, Mm -hmm. and, uh... In uh, in Europe, we have a tour manager that I really am super good friends with. So the, the interpersonal part of things finally right. is settled down because it has always been really, really difficult part of of uh, yeah of this band. Oh yeah. But now it's it's super together. Thank God. <laughs> no, I mean like I yeah I mean I've heard of you know like no there's been a lot of changeover in personnel over the years yeah. and whatnot and it's. It's but it's always interesting because I'm always like, oh, it's always going to be a different show. I'm going to see a different show every time. Yeah, that that part now, of it. That part of it. I, I mean, even even now, with the lineup seems pretty solid. I think we'll always each year we'll try to do something. So, are you feeling like you want to figure out a post tour situation, or do you feel like you're going to get to a point where like you don't want to tour? I don't want to tour now, but yeah. it's the you know now that people don't buy records, it's kind of the way I can make money <laughs> as a musician. Oh yeah, it is weird. That is what's kind of happening, yeah. now, right? I don't know why. I mean, I do know why. In some ways, I think it's just a generational thing. Maybe is happening. I don't know. I can't. If I don't think about it, then I don't feel horrible. Okay. So. <laughs> But you'll put out, like, a cassette or something and do, like, a limited, like, a mail order. Yeah, oh, no, I mean, we still, I mean, I still love making records. I mean, mm-hmm. we still, we still will continue to, to make them. I mean, it's, it makes, it's sort of on, the, the tables have turned in, insofar as people uh, would make a record and tour to support the record, and now you make a record in order to support touring. Mm-hmm. Um, Sell t-shirts. Yeah. You know, whatever. It's, it's a t-shirt it's, industry. It's very, very, very tedious and boring to talk about the, the economics of the current music industry the, the 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 low level touring musician life is there's nothing more boring than talking about the economics of that <laughs> but it's what we know but so it is what like we know we, we would talk about like we have been talking about but i yeah it's like hard to see a way out of it like i don't know what the solution really is yeah well I, europe for now seems to be europe for better now is, than here but when is, you know, is it going to be Spotify that just makes people not want to go out? I don't know what it's going to be. I don't want to. Uh, yeah, you don't want to just say. I think. Yeah, I think when I when I can no longer make a living from it, then I will very definitely get a job not in the music industry. <laughs> but you've been cranking pretty hard. It's been like what, like it's been like fifteen years, twelve years, twelve years with no job, no jobbing. Yeah. full jobbing. This is full, full job, jobbing. You're full job. I feel very, even though I bitch about touring I feel incredibly grateful to be able to do it um because you have like a dedicated group of fans we're pretty lucky I mean it's not a lot of people but the people who are into it seem to be pretty solidly into Mm -hmm. it and um are are by and large people who are very very sweet and very smart and interested in a lot of different kinds of music and Mm -hmm. um so we're uh we're really 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 lucky in that regard I think that's what people need now. I think, like, even if you look at, like, how things, like, with, like, crowdfunding work, it's, like, if you've got... Do you find that depressing, or do you find it just, that's the way life is now? I find it personally depressing, and I'm going through a crowdfunding thing. What are you working on? Not personally for me, but for Lost Weekend Video. Oh, right. They're doing crowdfunding to try and, like, just, I mean, again, talk about a media format changing, like, they are getting... They're kind of been killed by Netflix, yeah. and it's amazing they're still here. It is pretty amazing. And the only reason that happens is there's a lot of goodwill and a lot of people that want to support it yeah. just to have the space going. But, I mean, those people probably also have Netflix, so... <laughs> it, I mean, when I look at that, it's like, okay, that was, that was gonna have to change, and then they're doing a smart thing of, like, how do we convert what's working about what we do and try to adapt to a new situation. And I kind of feel like if you can just crowdfund what you need a label for... Ideally, it's, like, for publicity and creating, like, some yeah. kind of, you know, someone to handle some of that stuff and, you know, accounting of some things. And you don't have to front money for your record. But in a lot of ways, that 
I feel like a lot of small labels, being a small label myself, I'm like, okay, how is this going to sustain itself? Yeah. When I, I, and this one thing I do want to talk to Owen about, because he's got this really cult situation going on with his thing, too. Yeah. You kind of basically are modeling, I'm almost like modeling labels, like, what Kickstarter things and fund, crowdfunding things, they're just what we would have called pre-orders back in the day, right? It would have just kind of been like pre-orders. That's a sane way to think about it. I mean, that would have been the idea. It's like, hey, I'm going to make a limited number of this thing. You want to just give me some money in advance so I can do it. And uh, now it's like, let's make a game out of it and give part of it to Amazon. That's kind of what it's been. It's so hot right now. I can barely handle this. Yeah, and this, and this is, not this a is hot actually day. not so hot. I yeah. know. I keep I keep feeling that. Yeah. Like but I grew up here, so I'm a little more wired for it. But it does yeah. get miserably hot here. Um, but you know, those those things about Los Angeles, I, I love too. Do you feel like all your friends have left the area? You're. I think you are my my only regular friend who's still there. Actually, now that I said that I miss people up there, I just miss you. Ah, and now I'm here, and I'll be here a lot more often. My family still lives up there, so I, yeah. I miss being able to see them. But sure. everyone kind of bounced. I think people got priced out. I don't know. It just it's like it's hard. It's yeah, hard up there. Yeah, that's that's what I hear. Yeah, I thought about moving back up there um, when I was uh, in North oh, Carolina. That's right, North Carolina. That was kind of that's, a dark that period, sucked, right? Man. Yeah, you. <laughs> hated that. I really hated it. I remember we we went to your house and it was like nice. I've been to like a few of your houses I realize also. That's the only thing I missed about it is, is it's so cheap there. I lived in an incredibly beautiful house for less than I pay for where I live now. Uh, which is fine but not a house. I'm not a normal sized middle class house. Did that drive you to tour more? Because you're like I need shit out I of here. Toured all the that's time like kind of there. when you really cranked that up. Yeah. That's also sort of when the like record sales began to really tank. Like I, right. It was there. Then I got the first royalty check that I got, that I started crying. Oh, <laughs> <laughs> You're like sitting in North Carolina. And I got like, it. And everything's I was, okay. Oh, uh, I was like, oh, shit, this. <laughs> everything that I've heard about this being over is in fact over. <laughs> yeah. So it just really is. You just got to tour. You got to get commissioned to do things. You got to like self-release some stuff. Uh, we have not self-released anything as of yet. Except well, the tapes. For, except for some cassettes yeah. of, like, uh, you know, but that's, like, incredibly super harsh noise kind of things that I... I actually would love to get some of that stuff. I should get you... Email me and I'll send it to you. I will also give you a uh, thing out of my yeah, car please, if, you please can, do. if you can bike with a record or two. Oh, you know, I don't have a record player. Okay, Like, it's a total poser. That's fine. Uh, <laughs> You're like, look, the industry's dying. I uh. still buy CDs. I just don't own a record okay, player. Yeah, yeah. I buy. Well, I, then you are archaic if you're yeah, buying CDs. I know. You're like in in, the, I know. I in in my one. entire life, I have never, ever, 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 nor will I ever, stolen a record I, from the internet. Stolen. Yeah. That's... I tried to shoplift the cassette, which I got arrested for, but I've never what? off the internet. I I, I okay. never stole a record, and I okay. never will. When did you shoplift this cassette? From Tower Records, it uh-huh. was an I was an Ornette Coleman cassette. Were you how what weird? Well, how old were you? Like eighteen or something. Okay, you're like I'm gonna like re- yeah. I was like, sort of experimenting with being being an idiot, and uh, I just put it in my sock and was immediately in your sock. Yeah, like oh. they actually they actually didn't press charges because they said it was clear that I was such an amateur that I would not be trying this again. <laughs> Which was totally, totally true. And this is down here? This was here. Yeah. Here, yeah. I still live with my mom. I used to love going to Campbell to the Tower Records out there and just getting cassettes. That was the time. Cassettes are back, though. That yeah, Ornette Coleman are... cassette might be I worth, yeah. like, eight bucks now. It probably would Could be. Could have been, like, throw that up on the Discogs. <laughs> but, yeah, so, like, one attempt at shoplifting. Oh, and then I got banned from the store, but I still really wanted the cassette, so I went back... Wearing a like a Halloween mask into the store and just bought it. <laughs> oh, they were like, "We're fine with someone just walking in in a mask." No, I did it really quick, and they seemed to not be fine with it at all. And I think they knew it must have been me because it was like a couple days later, and it was the same cassette. And how many fucking kids from the valley are buying Ornette Coleman yeah. cassettes? Did it change your life? Uh it was not what I was looking for at the time. I think I was looking for something different. But it did send me on a road yeah. to, wi- to, to wider open ears than I would have had otherwise. 
well, that was fun for me to hear about a teenage shoplifting Jamie Stewart. Hopefully that was fun for you, too. Hopefully you enjoyed this last hour. There's a lot more where all of that came from. Uh, you can check georgethechen.tumblr.com, zomonline.com, and my Twitter account, georgethechen. And thanks a lot again to Ninth Floor Radio. Music in the show included a song by Darkie called Look at the Owl from the Cambodian Cassette Archives. It's a Blind Frequency's 2005 release. The music is by High Castle, the song After God on the album Spirit of the West on the label. Um, and this has been the Zum Podcast. Thank you.